Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 290. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First off, we have a promo for SofaCon 2013. Then the main fiction today comes from two writers getting together and writing mitigation. Tobias Bakel and Carl Skoda. Then right at the end, we have a little promo for Larry's show, Tales to Terrify. How about that? That is all coming up in Starship Sofa 290. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So as you know, on July the 28th is the first ever SofaCon. This is where we get together and really have an online science fiction convention. And our very own Amy H. Sturgis has done a little promo just to promote it. Ames. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I'm hoping that you will join the crew of Starship Sofa, our special guests, and friends from all over the world as a new tradition begins. That is SofaCon, an online international science fiction convention. This live history-making event will focus on those who are creators, scholars, and fans of the best of speculative fiction. Over the years, Starship Sofa has brought together a global community of science fiction lovers. It's time for old and new Sofanauts alike to meet in a real-time interactive virtual venue to celebrate the genre we love. If you join us, you can meet stellar authors, watch exclusive interviews and lectures, ask questions and offer comments. You can enjoy the science fiction convention experience from the comfort of your home. I myself will be involved in a variety of ways, including offering a live looking back in genre history segment, talking about the way that science fiction fans became a self-conscious, self-aware international community that gave rise to the very first science fiction conventions. I hope you'll join me and Tony C. Smith and all the others who are working to bring SofaCon to your home. Visit SofaCon.org for more information. We hope to see you live on the 28th of July, 2013. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to this. And there's so much work to do. But we've just had as well a massive announcement that Louis Macasta-Bijold is coming on and we're going to have Louis on as well. So 
I'll give a little run through of, of what's coming on last week. But like I say, to, to kind of to bag Lewis as you know one of the top science fiction writers out there. Do you know what I mean? Just massive, and it's we kind of we've been trying to get Lewis on board for. Oodles of time, you know, be kind of when we first kicked off SofaCon, you know, Amy and myself were working behind the scenes to try it. So it took this long, you know, to kind of, she didn't want to kind of come on if it was all kind of technical and worries. So we had to make sure our practice sessions were okay. And we've done that. And like say, Lois has said, yes. So what we looking forward to is this is Amy's going to have like a, it's in conversation with Lois McCaster Bajold. And it's just like a sit down. And like I say, it's all on video. So you'll get to see Amy just, you know, chatting with Lois about her work, about her life and everything like that. And <laughs> that's it. Amy, you know, you know, she teaches the blooming thing. You know what I mean? I think this one, we've all got one crutch of a writer that's just on your pedestal. Do you know what I mean? And just, who you've read, you've grown up reading, and you get to meet writers all, you know what I mean? You, you deal with them all the time. But then there's certain writers that just are like, you know, author gods to you. And for Amy, it's Lewis. Do you know what I mean? And you can, she's been <laughs> just all over the shop, excited like a kitty in a sweet shop, you know? So just fantastic. Like I say, I'm chuffed a bit. We've got Lewis on there. As you know, guest of honour is Peter Watts. We're getting Ted Kuzmatka and Greg Frost to do some readings as well. And we've actually got Amy's doing one of the look back in genre histories, you know, doing actually, on, or not online conventions, but conventions, you know, talking about the history of conventions. We've got Dennis Emlyan is talking about, you know, kind of the golden age of science fiction films and one f- film in particular, Creature from, I think it's the Black Lagoon. Black Lagoon. I think so, anyways, or... And there's a couple of other little things. We've got a, a quiz kicking off at the end of the thing as well. So that would be nice as well. So I hope you can come around. Tickets aren't on sale yet, but you can go over to sofacon.org and register. And when you kind of announce them, that'll be it. They'll be up on sale. And yeah, I think there's probably going to be about 80 tickets all told. You know, I'm going to have to keep 20, around 20 back for different guests popping in and out. So... There you go, but you know, hopefully, we'd love to see you over there. Tickets will be £10, cheap as chips, as we see over here on the northeast of England. Next up, then, is the main fiction, and it is Mitigation by Carl Schrodinger and Toby Espichel, or Tobias Espichel. I'll give you a little heads up about these two writers. Tobias Espichel, as you know, is a Canadian born New York Times best selling author. His work has been translated into 16 different languages. He's published more than 50 short stories in various magazines and anthologies and has been nominated for the Hugo Nebula Award, Prometheus and the Campbell Awards. His latest novel is Arctic Rising, available from Tor. And if anyone's... I guess I came into Toby when he wrote a story called Green Thumb and it was played on a skate pod in... Ooh, years ago. And... From then, I've been a fan of Toby. You know what I mean? That Green Thumb story was just... And the, the reading of it as well was just... Just hit all the kind of right notes for me. Carl Schrodinger is a Canadian science fiction author with pub, 10 published novels, including five books of the Vigras series and more than a dozen published short stories. He's also the co-author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Writing Science Fiction with Cory Doctorow. His awards include the 1993 Priora Award for Best Short Work and the 2003 Award for Best Canadian SF Novel. 
His novel Ventress was named the New York Times Notable Book and he's earned him an Audio Award for his short story contribution to the Shared World Anthology audiobook Metatropolis. Now, this story first came about in the anthology Fast Forward 2, which came out in September 2008. This was edited by Lou Anders for Pride Publications. It was also included in the year's best science fiction 14, or SF14, by, edited by David G. Hartwell and Catherine Kramer. Just in that, because that was a great collection as well that came out, I'll just give you a little heads up who else was in there. Paul Cornell was in there, Nancy Cress. With the Kindness of Strangers. Now, I think we played that story as well. Benjamin Rosenbaum, Paul McCauley, Mike Resnick. There you go. Now, don't forget, Mike Resnick, Paul DeFilippo are doing a My Writing course on the 16th of June. Tickets are on sale. Just come up the front of the website. <laughs> Straight in there. Never miss a trick. So, actually before, so, this story, is, this story is actually narrated by Mike Boris. Now, come on, Mike Boris, man. He's like, you know you're in the hands of a professional when kind of Mike's got that, and it's just, you know what I mean, when you listen to this, you'll just get totally absorbed in this story. Mike Boris is, if anyone doesn't know, a professional voice artist, creating work over tracks for e-learning courses and commercials. He is the narrator for Trout Lake Media Productions of Sun Tao's The Art of War, The Call of the Wild, and The Red Brigade of Courage. So or maybe The Red Badge of Courage. He's narrated numerous podcasts, including a dozen for Starship Sova. Going back to, wow, episode 87. Mike, man, wow. We're all fellas together. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Mitigation by Tobias Espichel and Carl Schroeder. Chauncey St. Christie squinted in the week 3 a.m. sunlight. No, two degrees higher. He adjusted the elevation, stepped back in satisfaction, and pulled on a lime-green nylon cord. The mortar burped loudly, and seconds later, a fountain of water shot up ten feet from his target. His sat phone vibrated on his belt, and he half-reached for it, causing the gyroscope-stabilized platform to wobble slightly. Damn it! How close are they? That must be Maxime on the phone. The damn Russian would be calling about the offer again. Chauncey ignored the reminder and reset the mortar. His friend, Kulitek, stood on the rail of the trawler and scanned the horizon with a set of overpowered binoculars. The echo-response ships are moving to drop oil containment booms. Canadian Coast Guard gunboats are on the far edge of the spill. As long as they're busy, Chauncey adjusted the mortar and dropped another shell into it. This shot hit dead on, and the Carbon Johnny TM blew apart in a cloud of styrofoam, cheap solar panel fragments, and chicken wire. Kulitek lowered his binoculars. Nice one. One down, a million to go, muttered Chauncey. The little drift of debris was already sinking, the remaining flotsam joining the ever-present scrim of trash that peppered most ocean surfaces. Hundreds more carbon johnnies dotted the sea all the way to the horizon, each one a moronically simple mechanism. A few bottom-of-the-barrel cheap solar panels sent a weak current into a slowly unreeling sheet of chicken wire that hung in the water. This electrolyzed calcium carbonate out of the water. As the chicken wire turned to concrete, sections of it tore off and sank into the depths of the Marikov Basin. These big reels looked a bit like toilet paper and unraveled in the same way, a few sheets at a time. Hence the name Carbon Johnny. Sequesters International, NASDAQ symbol SQI, turned them out by the shipload with the noble purpose of sequestering carbon and making a quick buck from the carbon credits. 
Chauncey and his friends blew them up and sank them almost as quickly. This is lame, Kulatak said. We're not going to make any money today. Let's pack up, find somewhere less involved. Chauncey grunted irritably. He'd have to pay for an updated satellite mosaic and look for another UN inspection blind spot. Kulatak had picked this field of carbon johnnies because overhead, somewhere high in the stratosphere, a pregnant blimp staggered through the pale air dumping sulfur particulates into a too clean atmosphere to help block the warming sun. But in the process, it also helpfully obscured some of the finer details of what Chauncey and Kulatak were up to. Unfortunately, the pesky ecological catastrophe unfolding off the port bow was wreaking havoc with their schedule. A day earlier, somebody had blown up an automated U.S. Pure Waters Incorporated tug towing a half-cubic kilometer of iceberg. Kulatak thought it was the Emerald Institute who'd done it, but they were just one of dozens of eco-terrorist groups who might have been responsible. Everybody was protesting the large-scale strip mining of the Arctic's natural habitat, and now and then somebody did something about it. The berg had turned out to be unstable. Chauncey had heard the distant thunder as it flipped over, somewhere in the mist-laden distance, when they'd motored out to this spot. He hadn't heard the impact of the passing supertanker that collided with its underwater spur three hours later, but he could sure smell it when he woke up. The news said three or four million tons of oil had leaked out into the water, and the immediate area was turning into a circus of cleanup crews. Media, Greenpeace, oil company ships, UN, government officials, they would all descend soon enough. There's money in cleanup, Chauncey commented. He smiled at Kulatak's grimace. Money, said Kulatak, and forms. And treaties you gotta watch out for, and politics like rat traps. Let's find another Johnny. The Inuit radicals who had hired them were dumping their own version of the carbon Johnny into these waters. Blowing up SQI's Johnny's was not, Chauncey's employer had claimed, actually privacy. It was merely a diversion of the carbon credits that would otherwise have gone to SQI. And at $100 per ton sequestered, it added up fast. He shrugged at Kulatak's impatient look and bent to stow the mortar. Broken styrofoam, twirling beer cans, and plush toys from a container ship accident drifted in the trawler's wake. Farther out, the Johnnies bobbed in their thousands, a marine forest through which dozens of larger vessels had to pick their way. On the horizon, a converted tanker was spraying a fine mist of iron powder into the air, fertilizing the Arctic Ocean for another carbon sequestration company. Just as the blimps overhead were smearing the sky with reflective smog to cut down global warming in another way, Helicopters crammed with biologists and carbon market auditors zigged and zagged over the waters, and yellow autosubs cruised under them, all measuring the effect. Mile-long oil supertankers cruised obliviously through it all. Now that the world's trees were worth more as carbon sinks than building material, the plastics industry had taken off. Oil as fuel was on its way out. Oil for the housing industry was in high demand. And in the middle of it all, Chauncey's little trawler. It didn't actually fish. There was fish enough. The effect of pumping iron powder into the ocean was to accelerate the Arctic's already large biodiversity to previously unseen levels. Plankton boomed, and the cycle of life in the deep had exploded. The ocean's fisheries no longer struggled, and boats covered the oceans with nets and still couldn't make a dent. Chauncey's trawler was camouflage. Who would notice another one picking its way toward a less-packed quadrant of carbon johnnies? 
Out in relatively clearer ocean, Chauncey sat on the deck as the Inuit crew hustled around, pulling in the purposely broken fishing nets so that the trawler could speed up. The ocean was gunmetal blue. There was no diving into these waters for a refreshing swim. Chauncey hadn't known how precious such a simple act could be until he'd lost it. The British Virgin Islands had been his whole universe once, but as he grew, that world had dwindled away. When the Greenland and East Antarctica ice shelves slid into the ocean, so had his own islands of Anagata, lost to the rising seas. These men he worked with cultivated an anger similar to his own. Their Arctic was long gone, but their deepest instincts still expected it to be here, he was sure, the same way he expected the ocean to be a glitter of warm emeralds he could cup in his hand. On days like today, he wondered whether Kulatak's people had gotten the worst end of the disaster. As the seven seas became the eight seas, and their land literally melted away, the Inuit faced an indignity that even Chauncey did not have to suffer, seeing companies, governments, and people flood in to claim it all. He found it delicious fun to make money plinking at carbon johnnies for the Inuit. But it wasn't big money, and he needed the big score. He needed to be able to cup those emeralds in his hands again. On rare occasions, he'd wonder whether he was going to spend the rest of his life up here. If somebody told him that was his fate, he was pretty sure he'd taken a last dive right there and then. He couldn't go on like this forever. The satellite data came back, and the crew realized that they couldn't quite hide the trawler beneath any more sulfur particle clouds today. It was time to head back to port and as the ship surged along, Chauncey checked the sat phone. Maxime had indeed called. Five times. Kulatak walked over. The Croat? Chauncey clipped the sat phone back to his waistband. You said it was a slow day. We're not making much. And with the spill, it's going to be a zoo. We could use a break. His friend grimaced. You don't want to work with him. There's money, but it's not worth it. You come in a powered canoe with me. The satellites can't see our faces. We hit more carbon johnnies. I'll bring sandwiches. There was no way Chauncey was going to motor his way around the Arctic in a damned canoe. They'd get run over. By a trawler, a tanker, or any other ship ripping its way through the wide-open lanes of the Arctic Ocean. There was just too much traffic. Kulatak was not just in it to make a living. A radicalized Inuit, seeking to help gain the people back some measure of independence as the world ran them over to fight for the Arctic. For him, destroying Carbon Johnny's was a life's mission. I'll think about it, Chauncey said, and the sat phone vibrated yet again. Late into the evening the next day, Chauncey entered the bridge of a rusted-out container ship that lifted slightly to port. Outside, the docks and cranes of Toktiyatuk cast long shadows. Hey, Max, he said, and sat down hard on an armchair in the middle of the bridge. Chauncey rubbed his eyes. He hadn't stopped to sleep yet. An easy error in the all-day-long sunlight. Insomnia snuck up on you as your body kept thinking it was day. Run all out for 48 hours and forget about your daily cycle, and you'd crash hard on day three. And the listing bridge made him feel even more off-balance and weary. Took you damn long enough. I should get someone else just to spite you. Maxime muttered his reply from behind a large, ostentatious, and extraordinarily expensive real wooden desk, almost hidden behind the nine screens perched at various angles all over. 
Their light lit up the underside of his face. Maxime was a slave to continuous partial attention. His eyes flicked from screen to screen, and he constantly tapped on the surface of the desk or flicked his hands at the screens. In response, people were being paid, currencies traded, stocks bought and sold. And that was the legitimate trade. Chauncey didn't know much about Maxime's other hobbies, but he could guess from the occasional exposed tattoo that Maxime was Russian mafia. Well, I'm here. Maxime glanced up. Yes. Yes, you are. Good. Chauncey, you know why I give you so much business? Chauncey sighed. He wasn't sure he wanted to play this game. No, why? Because even though you are here for dirty jobs, you like the ones that let you poke back at the big guys. It means I understand you. It makes you a more unique asset. So I have a good one for you. You ready for the big one, Chauncey? The payday that lets you leave to do whatever it is you really want, rather than sitting around with little pop guns and styrofoam targets? Maxime picked up a sweaty glass of iced tea with a large wedge of lemon stuck on the rim and sipped it. Chauncey felt a weird kick in his stomach. What kind of big, Max? Maxime had a small smile as he put the iced tea down. Big. He slowly turned a screen around to face Chauncey. There were a lot of zeros in that sum. His lips dried and he nervously licked them. That's big. He could retire. What horrible thing will I have to do for that? It begins with you playing bodyguard for a scientist. Uh-oh. As a rule, scientists and Russian mafia didn't mix well. I'm really just guarding her, right? Max laughed, but Chauncey's question had been serious. Five years ago, a somewhat shadowy man by the name of Vadim convinced a number of various European bosses to fund the two trillion needed for a consortium of advanced materials companies to build an elevator to space using boron nanotubes. From this, a series of private space companies were paid to then launch and stabilize a series of space mirrors. The mafia had hoped to do an end run around the large energy companies with a cheap energy source they'd have a stranglehold on. But it hadn't worked out. Cheap solar energy was fine enough, but oil still worked for building materials, still burned, and solar panels on Earth had seen improvements enough. It was a non-event. A lot of green power scientists had been found dead shortly after. Vadim had been taken up the elevator and shot out the end without a spacesuit by the bosses. And people like Maxime were left struggling to use their cheap energy to manipulate the market. As for the elevator itself, last Chauncey read they were still desperately trying to sell it to any world government, and the Russians were still looking for the big world score. Maxime looked annoyed. If I wanted her dead, I wouldn't have called you. He pointed out the grimy windows. A wind-blown, ruddy-cheeked woman wrapped in a large, hands-around-the-world parka stood at the rail. She was reading something off the screen of her phone. That's the scientist? Here? Yes. That is River Bellany. Was big into genetic archaeology. She made a big find a couple years ago and patented the DNA for some of big agri-corporation for exotic livestock. Now she mainly verifies viability, authenticity, and then couriers the samples to Svalbard for various government missions out here. And she's just looking for a good security type, in case some other company wants to hijack a sample of what she's carrying? Which is why she came out to this rusted-out office of yours? Maxim grinned over his screens. Right.
Chauncey looked back at the walkway outside the bridge. River looked back, then glanced away. She looked out of place, a moon-faced little girl who should be in a lab, sequencing bits and pieces sandwiched between slides. Certainly she shouldn't be standing in the biting wind on the deck of thousands of tons of scrap metal. So I steal what she'll be carrying? Is that the big payday? No. Maxim looked back down and tapped the desk. Another puppet somewhere in the world danced to his string pulls. She'll be given some seeds we could care less about. What we care about is the fact that she can get you into the Svalbard seed vault. And in there? Maxim reached under his desk and gently set a small briefcase on the table. This is Portable Sequencer. Millions of research and development spent so that a genetic archaeologist in the field could immediately do out in the open plains what used to take a lab team weeks or months to do. Couple it with a fat storage system, and we can digitize nature's bounty in a few seconds. Chauncey stared down at the case. What? We want you to get into the seed vault and sequence as many rare and precious seeds as you can. They have security equipment all over the outside, but inside, it's just storage area. No weapons. Just move quick to gather the seeds and control the scientists while you gather the seeds. The more paleo seeds, the better. When you leave, with or without her, you get outside. You pull out the antenna and you transmit everything. You leave Svalbard however you wish, charter a plane to be waiting for you, or the boat you get there with. We do not care. Once we have the information, we pay you. You leave Arctic, find a warm place to settle down, buy a nice house and a nice woman. Enjoy this new life. Okay, we never see each other again. I'll be sad, true but maybe I'll retire too, and neither of us cares. You understand? Chauncey did. This was exactly the score he'd been looking for. He looked at the windblown geneticist and thought about what Maxime might not be telling him. Then he shook his head. You know me, Max. This is too big. Way out of my comfort level. I'll become internationally wanted. I'm not in that league. No, no, Maxime slapped the table. You are big league now, Chauncey. You'll do this. I know you'll do this. Chauncey laughed and leaned back in the chair. Why? Because if you don't, Maxime also leaned back, if you don't, you will never forgive yourself when military contractors occupy Svalbard in two weeks, taking over the sea vault and blackmailing world with it. You've got to be joking. The idea that someone might trash Svalbard was ridiculous. That would be like bombing the Vatican. Svalbard was the holiest of green holies, a bank for the world's wealth of seeds stored away in case of apocalypse. These are Russian mercenaries, my friend. Russia's dying. They never were cutting edge with biotech ever since Lysenkoism in the Soviet days. The plague strains that ripped through their wheat fields last year killed their stock, and Western companies had patented most varieties of wheat germ. They feel they have no choice but to raid the seed bank in order to re-establish some unique strains that won't get them sued in the world market for copyright infringement. This year's whole crop of wheat, rye, and rice depends on this. And in the process, they will keep control of the bank, along with all the unique paleogenetic crap they keep stored there. So it's the Russians behind the mercenaries? And no one knows about this? No one. No one but us, Maxim laughed. You will be hero to many, but more importantly, rich. Chauncey sucked air through his teeth and mulled it all over. 
but he and Maxime already knew the answer. What about travel expenses? Maxime laughed. You're friends with those Indians. First Nations peoples. Whatever. Just get permission to use one of their trawlers. The company she's currying for is pretty good about security. They'll drop in by helicopter when you're in transit to hand over the seeds. They'll call with a location and time at the last minute, as long as you tell them what your course will be. A good faith payment is... Maxime tapped the screen. Now in your account. You can afford to hire them. Happy birthday. It's not my birthday. Well, with this job, it is. And Chauncey. Yes, Max? You fuck it up, you won't see another birthday. Chauncey wanted to say something in return, but it was no use. For one, it was true. For another, Maxime had turned his attention back to his screens. For a moment, he considered turning Maxime down, still. Then he glanced out the window at a sea that would never be the right color, that would never cradle his body and ease the sorrows of his losses. He hefted the briefcase and stepped outside to introduce himself to River Bellany. The trawler beat through heavy seas, making for Svalbard. The sun rolled slowly around a sky drained of all but pastel colors, where towering clouds of dove gray and mauve hinted at a dusk that never came. You covered your porthole to make night for yourself, and stepped out of your stateroom seemingly into the same moment you had left. After years up here, Chauncey could tell himself he was as used to the midnight sun as he was to heavy seas, but the new passenger, who was much on his mind, stayed in her cabin while the seas heaved. After two days, the swells subsided, and, for a while, the ocean became calm as glass. Chauncey woke to a distant crackle from the radio room, and as he buttoned his shirt, Kulatak pounded on his door. I heard, I heard. It's not just the helicopter, Kulatak hissed. Tuktoyuktuk elders just contacted me over a single sideband radio. We think Maxime's dead. Think? Chauncey looked down the tight corridor between the trawler's cabins. The floorboards creaked under their feet as the ship twisted itself over large waves. Several tons of sulfur particulates, arc welded into a solid lump, dropped from the stratosphere by a malfunctioning blimp, so they say. There's nothing left of Maxime's barge. It's all pieces. Pieces. Chauncey instinctively looked up toward the deck, as if expecting something similar to destroy them on the spot. I told you you don't get involved with that man. You're out here playing a game that will get you killed. Get out now. Chauncey braced himself in the tiny space as the trawler lurched. It's too late now. They don't let you back out this late in the game. He thought about a private army moving out there somewhere, getting ready to take over the vault, all at the bequest of another nation, assuming it could just snatch that which belonged to all. They still had time. Come on, let's get that package for her. She'll fall overboard if we don't help her out. They stepped out on deck to find River Bellany already there. She was staring up at the dragonfly shape of an approaching helicopter, which was framed by rose-tinted puffballs in the pale, drawn sky. She said nothing, but turned to grin excitedly at the two men as the helicopter's shuddering voice rose to a deafening crescendo. The wash from its blades scoured the deck. Kulatak, clothes flapping, stepped into the center of the deck and raised his hands. Dangling at the bottom of a hundred feet of nylon rope, a small plastic drum wrapped in fluorescent green duct tape swung dangerously past his head, twirled, and came back. On the third pass, he grabbed it, and somebody cut the rope in the helicopter. 
the snaking fall of the line nearly pulled the drum out of Kulatak's hands. By the time he'd wrestled his package loose from it, the helicopter was a receding dot. River walked up to help him, and after a moment's hesitation, Chauncey followed. The fuck is this? The empty drum at his feet, Kulatak was holding a small plastic bag up to the sunlight. River reached up to take it from him. It's your past, she said, and our future. She took the package inside without another glance at the men. Kulatak peered after her. I say we drop her off and go back to Sink and Johnny's. Surprised, Chauncey shook his head. Your elders agreed to let us take the trip. Yes, but they don't exactly know all the details, do they? All they need to know is how much we're going to make from this. And we told them the truth about that. I don't see your problem. Chauncey walked away before Kulatak could reply to that. And they'd both seen the look of glee on River's face when she saw those seeds. He wasn't about to admit that a little pang of guilt had shot through him seeing that. She was sitting on the cleaver-hacked table in the galley, peering at the bag. Those seem to mean a lot to you, he said cautiously as he slid in opposite her. Opening the bag carefully, River rolled a couple of tiny orange seeds onto the tabletop. Paleo seeds, she mused. It looks like Mountain Avon, but according to the manifest... She tapped a sheet of paper that had been tightly wadded and stuffed into the bag. It's at least 30,000 years old. Chauncey picked one up gingerly between his fingertips. And that makes it different? She nodded. Maybe not, but it's best to err on the side of caution. Have you ever been to the seed vault? He shook his head. When I was a girl, I had a model of Noah's Ark in my bedroom, she said. You could pop the roof open and see the little giraffes and lions and stuff. Later, I thought that was the dumbest story in the Bible. But the seed vault at Svalbard really is the Ark. Only for plants, not animals. Where'd you grow up? Valley, Nebraska, she said. Before the water table collapsed. You? British Virgin Islands. Anagata. She sucked in a breath. It's gone. Oh, that must have been terrible for you to experience. He shrugged. It was a slow death. It took long enough for me to make my peace with it. But my wife... How to compress those agonizing years into some statement that would make sense to this woman, yet not do an injustice to the complexity of it all. All he could think of to say was, It killed her. He looked down. River surprised him by simply nodding, as if she really did understand. She put her hand out, palm up, and he laid the seed in it. We all seem to end up here she mused, when our lands go away. Nebraska's a dust bowl now, and Agata's under the waves. We've come here to make sure nobody else has to experience that. He nodded. Actually, he'd come to the Arctic for money, but you didn't say things like that. Of course, it's a disaster, she went on, losing the Arctic ice cap, having the tundra melt and outgas all that methane and stuff. But every now and then there's these little rays of hope, like when somebody finds ancient seeds that have been frozen since the last glaciation. She sealed the baggie. Part of our genetic heritage, maybe the basis for new crops or cancer drugs or who knows. A little lifeboat, once it's safely at Svalbard. Must be quite the place, he said, if they only give keys to a few people. It's the Fortress of Solitude, she said seriously. You'll see what I mean when we get there.
Svalbard was a tumble of dollhouses at the foot of a giant's mountain. Even in the permanent day of summer, snow lingered on the tops of the distant peaks, and the panorama of ocean behind the docked trawler was wreathed in fog as Chauncey and River stepped down the gangplank. Both wore fleeces against the cutting wind. A thriving tourist industry had grown up around the town and its famed fortress, thriving by northern standards, that is. The local tourist office had three electric cars they rented out for day trips up to the site. Two were out. Chauncey rented the third. He stood there counting out bills when his sat phone vibrated. He handed River the cash and stepped across the street to answer. Chauncey, said a familiar Croatian voice. You know who this is. Don't answer. We must be careful. The phones have ears, if you know what I mean. Listen, after my office had that unfortunate accident, I've been staying with a friend, but I'm okay. That big event that happened soon by your current location? I regret to say we think it has been moved up. They know about our little plan. We don't know when they attack, so hurry up. We still expect your transmission and for you to complete your side of the arrangement. Our agreement concerning success and failure, that still stands. Good luck, little dreadlocked buddy. Chauncey jumped a little at the dial tone. River waited next to the little car for him, and in a daze Chauncey put the briefcase behind his seat, took control, and they followed the signs along a winding road by the sea. River was animated, pointing out local landmarks and chattering away happily. Chauncey did his best to act cheerful, but he hadn't slept well the night before, and his stomach was churning now. He kept seeing camouflaged killers lurking in every shadow. There it is, she pointed. It took him a moment to see it, maybe because the word fortress had primed him for a particular kind of sight. What Chauncey saw was just a grim mountainside of scree and loose rock, patched in places with lines of reddish grass. Jutting eighty or so feet out of this was a knife blade of concrete, twenty-five feet tall but narrow, perhaps no more than ten feet wide. There was a parking lot in front of it where several cars were parked, but that, like Svalbard itself, seemed absurd next to the scale of the mountain and the grim darkness of the landscape. The cars were all parked together, as though huddling for protection. Chauncey pulled up next to them and climbed out into absolute silence. From here you could see the bay and distant islands, capped with white, floating just above the gray mist. Magnificent, isn't it? River's voice made him jump. He scowled, then hid that with a smile as he turned to her. Beautiful. It was, in a bleak and intimidating way. He just wasn't in the mood to appreciate that sort of sentiment right now. The entrance to the global seed vault was a metal door in the tip of the concrete blade. River was sauntering unconcernedly up to it. Chauncey followed nervously, glancing about for signs of surveillance. Sure enough, he spotted cameras and other subtler sensor boxes here and there. Maxime had warned him about those. The door itself was unguarded. River's voice echoed back as she called, Hello! The inside of the blade was unadorned concrete lit by sodium lamps. There was only one way to go, in. And after about eighty feet, the concrete gave over to a rough tunnel sheathed in spray-on cement and painted white. The chill in here was terrible, but he supposed that was the point. The vault was impervious to global warming and was intended to survive the fall of human civilization. That was why it was empty of anything worth stealing, except its genetic treasure, and was situated literally in the last place on earth any normal human would choose to go.
six tourists wearing bright parkas were chatting with a staff member next to a set of rooms leading off the right-hand side of the tunnel. The construction choice here was unpainted cinder block, but the tourists seemed excited to be here. River politely interrupted and showed her credentials to the guide, who nodded. She waved Chauncey to follow her. We're special, she said, and actually took his arm as they continued down the bleak, too brightly lit passage. Normally nobody gets beyond that. About twenty feet further on, the tunnel was roped off. Past it, a T-intersection could be seen where only one light glowed. No one commented on the briefcase. These were the airlocks, and strangely, the doors were just under five feet high. Chauncey and River had to duck to step inside the right one. The outer door shut with a clang. He was in. He'd made it. When the inner door opened, it was into a cavern some 150 feet long. Shelves lined the interior like an industrial wholesale store, filled with wooden boxes stamped with black numbers. It was a polar library of life. Chauncey pulled a small, super-spring-loaded chalk out of his pocket. He surreptitiously dropped it in front of the door and kicked it firmly underneath. It had a five-second count after his fingerprint activated it. After the count, the door creaked as it was wedged firmly shut. It was a preventative mechanism to keep River in more than anyone out. River slipped her packet out, foil. It sat in the palm of her hand. They're amazing, Seeds. All that information in that one tiny package. Tough, durable. No degradation for almost a century in most cases. Just add water. She led them to a row at the very back of the vault, reading off some sort of Dewey Decimal system for stored genetic material that Chauncey couldn't ascertain. Here they were. With a slight air of reverence in her careful, deliberate movements, she slid the long box off the shelf, set it carefully on the ground, and opened the lid. Inside hundreds of glittering packets, treasure, Chauncey thought, and the idea must have hovered in the air because she said it as well. It's a treasure, you know, because it's rarity that makes something valuable. There used to be hundreds of species of just plain apples in the U.S., farmers standardized down to just a dozen. Somewhere in here are thousands more, if we ever choose to need them. As she crouched and started flipping through foil packets, Chauncey retreated down the rows. He turned a corner out of her sight and pulled out the sheet of paper with Maxime's list of the rarest seeds. Matching the code next to the list with where to find the seeds was slightly awkward. He wasn't familiar with it like River was. But by wandering around, he found his first box and opened it to find the appropriate packet with three seeds inside. He flipped the briefcase open to reveal a screen, pad, and a small funnel in the right-hand side. All he had to do was dump a couple of seeds in the funnel and press a button. The tiny grinder reduced the seeds to pulp and extracted the DNA. After it whirred and spat dust out the side of the briefcase, a long dump of text scrolled down the screen, with small models of DNA chains popping up in the corners, not much more than pretty rotating screensavers for Chauncey. All he cared was that it seemed to be working— but he was going to have to pick up the pace. That had taken several minutes. He cradled the briefcase, leaving the box on the floor as he strode along looking for the next item on the list. There. This time the foil packet only had a single seed. Chauncey put it in the palm of his hand and stared at it. Like River's paleo seed, this was the only existing seed of its kind. Suppose the machine wasn't working. He shook his head and dropped the single seed in and listened to the grinding. More text scrolled down the screen. Success, a full sequence. Chauncey blew out his held breath. It steamed in the freezing air. 
Just what the hell are you doing? River asked. Her voice sounded so shocked it had modulated itself down into almost baritone. There was another foil packet with two seeds in it nearby. It matched the list. Chauncey had hit a box full of rare and unique paleo seeds stored here by a smaller government prospecting in the Arctic, or maybe a large and paranoid corporation. He dumped the seeds in and the briefcase whirred. Jesus Christ! River looked around him at the briefcase. That's a sequencer! Chauncey, those seeds are one of a kind! He had what looked like an inhaler in his pocket, one forcibly administered dose and he could knock her out for twenty-four hours. But he didn't want to leave River passed out among the boxes for the nearing mercenaries to find. Who knew what a bunch of ex-military types kicked out of some Russian province when funding evaporated, and who probably served with multinational forces in some hotspot where they could traffic humans, drugs, and weapons, would do to her. He was not that kind of person. He didn't want to find out. Listen! River stayed oddly calm, her breath clouding the air over his head as he crouched over the sequencer. That might be a good sequencer, but even the best ones have an error rate. You're going to be losing some data. This is criminal. You have to stop, or I'm going to get someone in here to stop you. Go get someone. The chalk would keep her occupied for a while. She ran off, and Chauncey finished the box. He ticked the samples off his list, then started hunting for the next one along the shelves. It was taking too long. There. He cracked open the new box and dumped the seeds in. River had caught back up to him, though, giving up the door faster than he'd anticipated. Listen, you can't do this, she said. I'm going to stop you. He glanced over his shoulder to see that she'd pulled pepper spray out of the ridiculous little pouch she kept strapped to her waist in lieu of a purse. Knocking her out would leave her a victim. He really couldn't live with that. River, a relatively naive and noble refugee, caught up in a vicious world of international fits over genetic heritage and ecological policy. He was not going to leave her for the sharks. Look, River, a private army for hire is about to land on Svalbard and take the whole seed vault hostage. She hesitated, the pepper spray wavering. What? Over-engineered agristock and plague. I'm told the Russians are pretty damn hell-bent on regaining control of uncopyrighted genetic variability for robustness and to reboot their whole agricultural sector. They've hired a private army to come here. It gives them some plausible deniability on the world stage. I've been sent to get what I can out of the vault before they get here within the next couple hours. River paused. Who are you working for? Chauncey bit his lip. He hated lying. In this situation, she might as well hear the truth. He didn't have time to lay down anything believable anyway. The Russian Mafia... They're connected enough to have gotten a heads up. They think they can get some serious coins selling these sequences to companies around the world. She stared at him. You swear? Why the hell would I make this up? He watched as she opened the zipper on the hip pouch and pocketed the pepper spray. She grabbed her forehead and leaned against the nearest shelf. I can't fucking believe this. I need to think. It's a crazy world, Chauncey mumbled, and tipped a new pouch of seeds into the sequencer as she massaged her scalp and swore to herself. The sequence returned good, and he stood up, looking for the next box. What are you doing? Looking for the next item on the list. She walked over, and Chauncey tensed, but all she did was snatch it from him. There are a few missing that he should have, she said. Like? Like the damn seed I just brought here. River looked up at the shelves. Look, you're wandering around like a lost kid in here. Let me help you. He took the sheet of paper back from her. And why would you do that? Because until five minutes ago, 
I thought the vault was the best bank box and seeds the best storage mechanism. You just blew that out of the water, Chauncey. As a scientist, I have to go with the best solution available to me at the time. If these mercenaries are going to invade and hold the seeds, then we need to get that genetic diversity backed up, copied and kicked out across the world. Selling it to various companies and keeping copies in a criminal organization is not the best-case scenario I dreamed of, but we have to mitigate the potential damage of a small militarized force holding this for itself, and then of another army seeking to knock them back out of the bank. Other countries are not going to stand for this, but that all will risk the bank. I mean, this is one of the big reasons for creating Svalbard. Vaults in countries with civil wars were being destroyed. Rivers sighed. It's a damn mess. He'd expected her to ask for a cut of the profit. Instead, she was offering to help out of some scientific rationalism. Okay, he said slowly. Okay, but the list stays here, and you bring back the foil packets sealed to me, so that you can see that I'm not bringing back the wrong seeds, and so I don't rip up your list? Chauncey smiled. Exactly. Plinking carbon johnnies was a lot more fun, and a hell of a lot easier. He felt ragged and frayed. Screw retirement. He just wanted out of this incredibly cold, eerie environment and the constant weight of expecting armed men to kick in the airlock door and shoot him. But things moved quicker now. River ranged ahead, snagging the foil packets he needed and those he didn't even know he needed. For the next forty minutes, he made a small mountain of pulped seed around him as the briefcase processed sample after sample, resembling more a portable mill than an advanced piece of technology. His sat phone beeped, an alarm he'd set back on the boat. Chauncey closed the briefcase, and River walked around a shelf corner with a foil packet. What? It's time to go, Chauncey said. We don't have much time. But... Like any other treasure hunter, she looked around the cavern. So many more precious samples that hadn't been snagged. But Chauncey had a suspicion that what River valued was not necessarily what the market valued. They had what they needed. Best not push it any further. Come on. We don't want to be standing here when these people arrive. Chauncey bent over and rolled his fingerprint on the chalk, and it slowly cranked itself down into thinness again. He placed it back in his pocket, and they cycled through the airlocks, again ducking under the unusually low entrances. They walked up the slight slope of the tunnel, the entrance looking small and brightly lit in the distance. As they passed the offices on the left, one of the guards looked up and smiled. All good? You were in there a long while. Should I search you? Chauncey tensed and got ready to run. But River smiled. Everything was fine. Just enjoyed standing in there. It's like a library, you know? The guard nodded. Well, the next time you're authorized to come, don't stay so long. I logged it in the computer as a deviation. But don't worry, you're not the only one who gets carried away by it all. River nodded and they passed onto the other side of the guard. Chauncey's mood lifted. Hey, the guard said. If you're in town, get a look at that fleet of ten or so small warboats out there. They're doing some serious exercises, wargaming, some sort of Arctic defense scenario for the oil companies or other. They're all around Svalbard. Just amazing to see all those ships. Chauncey's mood died. They entered the mouth of the tunnel, shielding their eyes from the sun. Chauncey opened the briefcase on the roof of the car and punched the on button on the sat phone inside. The little screen lit up and said, hunting. Damn it, come on, he muttered. Uh, Chauncey? Just wait, wait. It'll just take a second. But she grabbed his arm and was pointing straight up. 
He craned his neck and finally spotted the tiny dot way up at the zenith. The satphone said, hunting, 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 and then, no signal. You've been jammed, River said, quite unnecessarily. Chauncey cursed and slammed the briefcase. And there, she grabbed his arm again. Way out in the sky over the bay, six corpse-gray military blimps were drifting toward them with casual grace. We're out of time. No way they'd outrun those in a bright yellow electric car. Chauncey looked around desperately. Hole up in the vault? Fortress of solitude it might be, but it wouldn't keep the Russians out for more than a minute. Run along the road? They'd be seen as surely as if they were in the car. He popped up the hatch of the car and rummaged around in the back. As he'd hoped, there was a cardboard box there crammed with survival gear, a package of survival blankets, flares, and heat packs standard for any far northern vehicle. He grabbed some of the gear and slammed the hatch. Run up the hill, he said. Look for an area of loose scree behind some boulders. We're going to dig in and hide. It's not a very good plan. It's not the whole plan. He pulled Maxime's list out and rummaged in the car's glove compartment. Damn, no pen. Here. She fished one out of her pocket. Ah, scientists. Quickly, he wrote the words scanned and uploaded at the top of the first page, above and to the right of the list. He underlined them. Then he made two columns of check marks down the page, one under each of the column headings. Okay, come on. They ran back to the vault. Chauncey threw the list down just inside the door. Then they started climbing the slope beside the blade. The upcoming blimps were on the other side. If there were men watching, it would look like Chauncey and River had gone back into the vault. He hoped they were too confident to be that attentive. After all, the vault was supposedly unguarded. Over there! River dragged him away from the blade toward a flat shelf fronted by a low wall of black rocks. The slope rose at about thirty degrees, a loose tumble of dark gravel and fist-sized stone where a few hardy grasses clung. Okay, get down. She hunkered down, and he wrapped her in a silvery survival blanket, then began clawing at the scree with his bare hands, heaping it up around her. The act was a kind of horrible parody of the many times he'd buried his sister in the sand back home. Awkwardly, he made a second pile around himself, until he and River were two gravel cones partially shielded by rock. You picked a good spot, he commented. They had a great view of the parking lot and the ground just in front of the entrance. He'd wedged the briefcase under the shielding stones. His eyes kept returning to it as the mercenary force came into view over the flat roof of the vault. The blare of the blimp's turboprops shattered the vault's deathly silence. They swiveled into position just below the parking lot, lowered down, touched, and men in combat fatigues began pouring out. Chauncey and River ducked as they scanned the hillside with binoculars and heat-sensing equipment. I'm cold, said River. Just wait. If this doesn't work, we'll give up. After a few minutes, Chauncey raised his head so he could peer between two stones. The Russians seemed satisfied with their perimeter, and now a man in a greatcoat strode up the hillside. The coat flew out behind him in black wings as one of the soldiers ran up holding something small and white. Jackpot, muttered Chauncey. It was Maxime's list. What's happening? Moment of truth. He watched as the commander flipped through the list. Chauncey could see the man's mouth working, cursing, no doubt. He threw down the list and pulled a sat phone out of his coat. He thinks we got the data out, said Chauncey. That should be all it. The commander put away the sat phone and waved to his men. Shaking his head in disgust, he walked away from the vault. The bewildered soldiers followed, nodding up into little groups to mutter amongst themselves. I don't believe it. It worked. I can't see anything.
They think Maxim's got the data on the unique seeds. It's pretty obvious that we destroyed those in processing them, so these guys have exactly nothing now, and they know it. If they stay here, they'll just get rounded up by the UN or the Norwegian Navy. So you've won? The blimps were taking off. We win. It's still plunder, Chauncey. Stones rattled as Rivers shook them off. Theft of something that belongs to all of us. He stood up, joints aching, to find his toes and ears were numb. Little rockfalls tumbled down the slope below him. Listen, River continued, I don't think you ever wanted to do this in the first place. The closer we got to Svalbard, the unhappier you looked. You know it was wrong to steal this stuff to begin with. And look at the firepower even this small army sent after it had. It's a hot potato, and you'd best be rid of it. How? He shook his head, scowling. We've already scanned the damn things. Maxime, Maxime will know the mercenaries got here while we were here. We'll just tell him they got here before us, that they got the material. And this? He picked up the briefcase. It goes back where it belongs, back into the vault. He thought about it as they trudged down the hillside. Truth to tell, he had no idea what he'd do if he were tired now anyway. Probably buy a boat and come back to plank carbon johnnies. He wanted the Emerald Sea. He wanted those waters back. But now they were battered with hurricanes. The islands themselves depopulated and poor now that tourism had left, and the beaches been destroyed by rising tides and storms. From behind him, she said, It's an honorable solution, Chauncey, and you know it. They reached the level of the parking lot, and she stopped, holding out her hand. Here, I'll take it in. Now that the Russians have tried this, they'll put real security on this place. Keep it safe for everybody, the way it was meant to be. He thought about the money, about Maxime's wrath, but he was tired, and damn it, when, during this whole fiasco, had he been free to make his own choice on anything, if not now? He handed her the briefcase. Just be quick. The whole Svalbard police force is going to descend on this place now, all five or six of them. She laughed and disappeared into the dark fortress with the treasure of millennia in her hand. Night was falling in the Arctic at last. Chauncey stood on the trawler's deck watching the last sliver of sun disappear. Vast purple wings of cloud rolled up and away, like brushes painting the sky in delicate pastel hues of mauve, pale peach, silver. There were no primary colors in the Arctic, and he had to admit that after all this time, he'd fallen in love with that visual delicacy. The stars began to come out, but he remained at the railing. The trawler's lights slanted out, fans of yellow from doorways crossing the deck, the mist of radiance from portholes silhouetting the vessel's shape. The air was fresh and smelled clean, scrubbed free of humanity. He wondered if River Bellany was watching the fall's first sunset from wherever she was. They had parted ways in Svalbard, not exactly on friendly terms, he'd thought, but not enemies either. He'd figured she was satisfied that he'd done the right thing, but disappointed that he'd gotten them into the situation in the first place. Fair enough, but he wished he'd had a chance to make it up to her in some way. He'd probably never see her again. Kulitak's voice cut through his reverie. Sat phone for you. Chauncey shot one last look at the fading colors, then went inside. St. Christy here. Chauncey, my old friend. It was Maxime. Well, he'd been expecting this call. I can't believe you sent us into that meat grinder, Chauncey began. He'd rehearsed his version of events and decided to act the injured party, having barely escaped with his life when the mercenaries came down on the vault just as he was arriving. 
I'm lucky to be here to talk to you at... Oh, such sour grapes from a conquering hero. That was odd. Maxime actually sounded pleased. Conquering, they have conceded defeat. You uploaded the finest material, Chauncey. Our pet scientists are in ecstasy. So, as I'm a man of my word, I have wild the rest of your payment to the new account number you requested. New account? Chauncey stopped himself just in time. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Maxime. It was good, uh, doing business, yes. You see how business turns out well in the end, my friend, if you have a little faith and a little courage. Certainly I had faith in you, and justly so. I'd like to say we must do it again some day, but I know you'll vanish back to your beloved Caribbean now to lounge in the sunlight. And I'd even join you if I didn't love my work so much. Maxime pratted happily on for a minute or two, then rang off to deal with any of his other hundreds of distractions. Chauncey laid down the sat phone and collapsed heavily onto the bench beside the galley table. Something wrong? Kulatak was staring at him in concern. Nothing. Nothing. Kulatak shot him a skeptical look, and Chauncey said, Go on. Go find some carbon johnnies to bomb or something. I need a moment. After Kulatak had left, Chauncey went to his cabin and woke up his laptop. An email waited from one of his online payment services tied to a public email address for his Polar Consulting Services website. $25,000 had just been transferred to him, according to the email, from an email address he didn't recognize, but could guess who was behind it, a tiny fraction of the number Maxime had promised him. Chauncey had no doubt that it was a tiny fraction of the amount Maxime had actually paid out. His inbox pinged, a strange sense of faded certainty settled on Chauncey as he opened the mail program and saw a videogram waiting. He clicked on it. River Balany's wind-burnt face appeared on the screen. Behind her was bright sunlight, a sky not touched in pastels. She was wearing a T-shirt and appeared relaxed and happy. Hi, Chauncey, she said. I swore to myself I wouldn't contact you in case they got to you somehow. But it just seemed wrong to leave you in the lurch. I had to do something. So, well, check your email. A little gift from me to you. You know, I really wasn't lying when I told you I think the seed data belongs to all of mankind. I walked back into the vault seriously intending to leave it there. But then I realized that it wouldn't solve anything. We'd still have all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. As long as the seed data was in one place, stored in only one medium, whether it was as seeds or bits on a data chip, it would be scarce. And anything that's scarce can be bought and sold and hoarded and killed for. So I pulled the chips from the briefcase and wrote down the uploaded data on a scrap of paper. So I pulled the chips from the briefcase and wrote down the upload data on a scrap of paper. After we parted, I uploaded it to Maxime. And, yeah, I gave him my own bank account number. She chuckled. Sorry, but I was never the naive farm girl you and Kulatak seemed to think I was. Chauncey swore under his breath, but he couldn't help smiling, too. As long as the genetic code of those seeds was kept in one place, it remained scarce, she said again. That gave it value, but also made it vulnerable. Now Maxime has it. There'll be more and more copies as he sells it, and patents it, and uses it in various ways. And someday, when he's gotten what he wants out of it, and it's ceasing to be scarce anyway, someday I'll upload it all onto the net, for everyone to use. We all have to make hard choices these days, Chauncey, about what can be saved 
and what we have to leave behind. Svalbard will always be there, but its rarest treasure is now out, and with luck it won't be rare for long. So everybody wins this time. As to me, personally, I'm retiring, and no, I'm not going to tell you where. And I've left you enough for a really good vacation. Enjoy it on me. Maybe we'll meet again someday. She smiled, and there was that naive farm girl look, just for a second. Goodbye, Chauncey. I hope you don't think less of me for taking the money. The clip ended. Chauncey sat back, shaking his head and grinning. He walked out onto the deck of the trawler and looked out over the sea. The sun had just slightly dipped below the horizon, bringing a sort of short twilight. It would reemerge soon, bringing back the perpetual glare of the long days. Stars twinkled far overhead. No, not stars, Chauncey realized. There were far too many to be stars, and the density of them increased. Far overhead, a heavy blimp was dumping tiny bits of chaff glued to little balloons. Judging by the haze, they'd dumped the cloud into a vast patch of sulfur particulates. Both parties would be in court soon to fight over who would get the credit for blocking the sun's rays as it climbed back over the horizon. The sulfur haze had caused the remaining sun's rays to flare in a full hue of purples and shimmering reds, and the chaff glittered and sparkled overhead. It was so beautiful. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Toby's and Carl's. Carl, thank you very much, Toby. You're a star, so I'll give you a big hug. Thank you. And Mike, what can I say? Honestly, big thank you. So, it's time now to play a little promo by our four Tales to Terrify and Larry Santoro's doing some fantastic work over there. to terrify and the district of wonders present the 2013 stoker award nominees the thing that fell from the sky also returned also went back vermont avenue where the zombies are drifting thick as fog through the cracked and weedy streets every story i carefully run the tip of the sharp oyster knife through the red scar around her skull there's relatively little blood as I cut through the tissue. All the terror. The bomb blew, and his lower body evaporated. He died at that moment. But in my dreams, he lives for a few more seconds. We survive as a pocket of humanity, in a deluge of green terror. Cut off from the north, facing a relentless enemy from the south. Listen now to com. There you go. How cool is that? Every story going to be played on Tales to Terrify. Larry, what can I say? You know, everyone who's kind of involved in Tales to Terrify, Cher and Jim, oh man, big hugs. Thank you so much. So that is show 290. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I do hope you'll think about, you know, coming over to when SilverCon's launched and announced and when its tickets are on sale, you'll snap a ticket up. And do try and get into, if you're into kind of serious into writing and you want to kind of 
get you right in advance. You know, I've writers workshops starting on it's on the sixteenth of June. And tickets are still on sale there. And we've still got some special advanced tickets. Are you kind of into that or that kind of business as well? Really pushing yourself. And if you want, listen, donations. You know, what can I say? A massive thank you to everyone who's donated. Don't forget, if you sign up for the monthly donations now, you get the originals, Starship Sova's originals, where it's myself and Kieran. We talk about all the kind of writers out there. And you get the... Joe Haldeman, How to Write Science Fiction webinar as well. So that would be fantastic. And listen, it would help this girl keep going. That's, that's all we want. Do you know what I mean? Just keep doing what we're doing. Putting out stories like mitigation. Help us do that. It'd be very nice. Come on, someone else's turn at the bar. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.